0: Once, when I was traveling, I happened upon this toothless vagrant somewhere in Florida. I can't remember the exact city. He was shirtless, he was intoxicated, and he was standing in the middle of the boiling heat on this uh, summer day, and this man was hurling insults at this cloudless sky. In particular, he kept shouting, I know you hear me, so why won't you help me? He was actually uh, praying in his own way, in the street for everyone to hear. Once I knew this foul-mouthed, beer-guzzling, racist, southern man who was famous for his inspiring prayers. Because he would gather this group together to pray before some event, always privately with a select few, and everyone would hang on uh, the poetic prose of each line like he was some old preacher who had committed his sermon to memory. Uh, Today, currently, I have this friend who lapses in and out of prayer without reverent distinction. Sometimes you don't even realize that he's begun to pray. And you're, oh, oh, okay, we're doing that right now. Um, He texts prayers to you. Uh, He sends prayers via voicemails. He prays suddenly in line at the grocery store. And who among these people is doing it right? To whom is God listening? Not just who can God hear, but the one to whom God is listening. Is it any of them or all of them or none of them? Because uh, perhaps shockingly for many of us, myself included, tonight's text seems to indicate that there is both a right and a wrong way to pray. So let's look at Matthew chapter 6 and let's read beginning in verse 5. Jesus says, When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, For they love to pray, standing in the synagogues, on the street corners, to be seen by others. And truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you, my disciples, pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Uh, All summer now, we've been working our way through Jesus' most famous and essential collection of teachings called the Sermon on the Mount. And the work has not been entirely without cause. Nearly a year ago, uh, if you were here, we at City set out to sort of re-architect our young church around this idea of apprenticeship. We believe the best way of understanding what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is with the concept of apprenticeship. Disciples are apprentices of Jesus. He is our teacher and our master, and we are his students, we come to Jesus to be saved, of course, but being saved is not an isolated event. Think of it this way. Imagine this gracious piano instructor that welcomes any and every pupil free of charge. They need only accept the invitation to come and learn. Then imagine a student that arrives to their first lesson, throws their hands up in the air and says, I am now a master pianist, and then says, I'll be back every week to celebrate. Sure, being accepted by the teacher is itself cause for celebration, but there's also work to be done. We want to actually learn the teachings and lifestyle of Jesus of Nazareth and then put them into practice. This is why for many months now we've been working our way through one first century biography of Jesus authored by a gentleman called Matthew. And beginning in chapter 5 of Matthew's biography, Jesus begins to offer his manifesto for life in what he calls the kingdom of God. So Jesus begins by insisting that he hasn't come to throw out the legal code of the Old Testament per se, but he has come to reveal the heart of God behind the law As the law was essentially a means of correcting rebellious Israel. And Jesus then goes on to offer six examples of how to go above and beyond the damage control of the law. This is something that scholars call the greater righteousness. But righteousness itself is actually a tricky concept because next Jesus begins to warn his disciples against false righteousness. His first warning is against doing acts of generosity and charity motivated by the approval and the honor of other people. In fact, you can actually illustrate the next set of teaching units thusly. You have uh, the bad practices, which are flashy generosity, that was last week, verbose prayer and melodramatic fasting, which I know all of you guys do all the time, And then for these things you get the bad reward, which is the praise of others and nothing more. And then you have the good practices, which for Jesus are second nature generosity, you know, giving as a near subconscious outworking of a greater disposition. And then you have sincere prayer and secret fasting, which I know some of you do all the time. And for those you get the good reward, which is that the Father will see and will reward you. Now last week we covered both the good and bad practice of reward Uh, practice and reward of flashy generosity versus generosity that comes as second nature. And then next, Jesus moves on to, of all things, the idea of prayer. So let's look at the text and work through it line by line. This is again chapter 6, verse 5. Jesus says, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. Now, If you remember last week, hypocrites here comes from a Greek word that literally means actors. So the word isn't the inherently derogatory jab that it has become today in the Western world. Jesus is dealing with insincerity. He's saying that the prayers of this crowd, the hypocrites, are for show. They're a sham. And he goes on. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. They have received their reward in full. Now, unlike our paradigm in the ancient world, both prayer and reading, whether it was accomplished privately or in public, were both done out loud. And of course, in the synagogue, prayer was expected. It's not like that was a bad thing. So this was apparently not enough for some of this group Jesus calls the hypocrites who took to praying outside of the synagogue as well in their quest for a larger audience. And that's the point. Prayer is, of course, intended for an audience, but that audience is always, by definition, God himself. Matthew scholar R.T. France puts it this way, Jesus felt that public-private devotion is an oxymoron. It is piety directed toward God and people. Prayer is not a form of evangelism. Prayer is addressed to God exclusively. And again, Jesus counters incorrect use with correct use. Let's read verse 6. But when you pray, this is him addressing his disciples, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, uh, in an ordinary Palestinian home in the first century, the most private room was probably the inner storeroom or a, a storehouse. It was the only room in the ancient Palestinian home that had a lock. Now, of course, uh, God can be accessed outside of the locked storeroom, but like any relationship, without privacy, without quality one-on-one time specifically set aside, intimacy begins to wither. Uh, You married folks know this all too well, that when life speeds up, you can absolutely spend every single moment of every day together without any sense of intimacy or connectedness whatsoever, and the same is true of God. And this is actually an an analogy that's worth pursuing because here again, the promise of being seen by the Father is tangled up in the reward that we receive from him. Whatever the reward is, Jesus doesn't actually say, but part of it is that God will see us. Now, uh, my wife, Abby, and I share a duplex with another family in our community. And every week, because of the convenience, we trade off watching our kids' monitors after bedtime so the other couple can go have a date night. Um, And honestly, uh, I think the date itself is very fun. We ordinarily go and get food somewhere or we go to Powell's and we read books. Actually, uh, I just go around finding interesting looking books and taking photos of them, and then I get them from the library afterward. Did you guys know that you can get books from the library for free? You don't have to pay them anything at all. In fact, at this library down here, these nuts will let you just keep the book forever and run up all these fines and then bring it back, and they're like, it's, it's fine. And they just clear your debt and let you rent more books. I'm not saying you should do that. In fact, don't do that, and I never do that uh, ever. Uh, how did I get here? Right, right. So I, I, we, we read books. We like books. Um, and we talk and we laugh. We enjoy one another's company. We, we genuinely, in, well, at least I enjoy your company. I don't know. I, I'm assuming she enjoys my company. Uh, but the intimacy is more than just the fact that we're hanging out. It's that we have special time set aside to be together, just she and I. And we get to see one another, as it were. When we shift from two folks who are moving through life side by side at breakneck speed to one person who hears and sees and knows what's most true about another person, it stewards intimacy. Uh, now, m- much of our time together as a couple, whether we're alone or with other people or parenting or whatever, is, is often quite lovely. But time together as just she and I is precious in maintaining intimate connectedness. Scholar Dale Bruner says it like this, Group prayer thrives only where private, where prior private prayer is alive. I'll say that again. Group prayer thrives only where prior private prayer is alive. And Cameron pointed out to me before the gathering that, man, this is so true of our concept of pre-gathering prayer. But four o'clock, a bunch of us show up together. You're all invited, by the way. And we listen to the Holy Spirit and try to see if God's saying anything specific over the gathering. And it it really only works when we've put the work in to steward intimacy with God on an ongoing basis. That doesn't mean that God doesn't show up and speak regardless. But man, when that intimacy is ever-present, it becomes a beautiful time. Now, Jesus is working an intentional contrast here. He mentions those who flee from God's personal presence into the cacophony of religious duty and compares them to those who flee from the cacophony of empty religious duty in order to experience God's personal presence. And some of us uh, are are like that, are like the uh, former, I think. In fact, it, it honestly can be quite easy for me, someone who works at a church. I have to read the Bible all week as part of my job. Uh, people like myself can hide at church or we can hide at community because we talk about Jesus and we pray out loud and we sing songs Um, and then we go days and weeks and even months without tasting even a moment of vulnerability in God's presence. Just He and you. When Jesus says that the Father is unseen, he's creating a link between the unseen prayer and God's presence. He's telling you, go to a place where no one can see you, because guess what? No one can see God. That's where God is. He's saying, when you go to the secret place, you're in luck. That's where God is. And he continues in verse 7. When you pray, do not keep babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. And, of course, Jesus goes on with His famous prayer template, what is often called the Lord's Prayer. But something interesting actually happens in verse 7. Jesus digresses from His trio of teachings on secrecy. There's been giving and prayer, and next there will be fasting. And he offers a bit of a tangent on how disciples are to pray. And remember in his six, in his examples, the three of them, charity, prayer, and fasting, Jesus is speaking to false righteousness. But in this small section right here about babbling like pagans, Jesus is dealing less with the motivation for praise from others, and more with a wrong understanding of God when we come to him for prayer. The first hint is, is the way that Jesus has changed the name of his negative example. Did you catch that? Previously, Jesus used a group labeled the hypocrites as his failure example before teaching the correct method as his positive example. But when Jesus begins to unpack his suggested way to pray, he suddenly drops the hypocrites as as his example and instead uses pagans, or people who are not disciples of Jesus. And there's actually a good reason. When Jesus uses hypocrites, or actors, as his negative example, he's addressing right behavior with wrong motivation. But a pagan doesn't even believe the right things about God in the first place. It'd be a bit like accusing someone of praying like an atheist which if they actually do that, it's called, uh, you know, sending good thoughts your way or something, which is always really funny to me because I realize that prayer to the outsider sounds like a baffling thing, and I sympathize. It is very strange. We talk to someone we can't see. We believe he talks back. Sympathize totally. But what is the sending good thoughts to? How exactly do you... Forget it. Um, I digress. Now, the pagans have no idea what it means to know God as their heavenly father. Rather than trusting their father to fulfill their true needs pagans, or people that are not of the people of God, believe that they were meant to sort of badger and beg reluctant, unpredictable deities into noticing them. If a pagan misstepped or used a word wrong in the ancient world, uh, or a sequence of words, the gods might ignore them or they might smite them. So prayer was actually a tense and terrifying ordeal. Some pagans believe that gods were reluctant to even turn an ear to the one praying if they had not first proved themselves to be worthy by expending lengthy bouts of confession and praise before the god would even listen so for jesus god is not like that he's a loving father and he is one who does not have to be convinced when his kids call for his attention jesus understanding of god is actually in keeping with isaiah 65 in which it is written of god himself before they call i will answer while they are still speaking i will hear Uh, Orthodox Jewish prayers are long. They must be recited more than once daily. Uh, Muslim prayers must be repeated at five appointed times in order to be properly executed, uh, including, of course, facing Mecca with the hands and uh, head in the proper position. Uh, Both Hindu and Buddhist prayers depend on the principle of repetition to be accomplished. And Jesus says to those outside of his way of life, listen, they think that the more that they talk, or the more that they do, they will be heard. And I'm telling you, my disciples don't be like them. And Jesus addresses both babbling and much speaking. He's condemning an approach that values quantity over quality. Uh, and of course, most of us actually know such a paradigm all too well. I have often stagnated in extended seasons of honoring a daily prayer regime faithfully, but with little or no intimacy whatsoever. Uh, There's no vulnerability, there's no connectedness to God, but hey, I checked the box. I did it every day. So if someone asks, I can say, yes, I did it every single day. And the danger is, of course, becoming comfortable with prayer that is done solely to check the box rather than to actually meet with God, which is the definition of quantity over quality. And I am absolutely in no way discouraging the spiritual discipline of prayer If you've been at City any length of time, you're painfully aware by now of our very high value of discipline, not just praying when we feel like it, not just praying when you feel led, but becoming people of disciplined prayer like Jesus himself. In fact, it's important, actually, I think, for us to understand what Jesus is and is not saying in this text. So while Jesus is certainly repeatedly depicted as praying privately, if you've read the stories of his life, he isn't forbidding his disciples from praying out loud or in public, or in groups. Jesus himself does all of the above, if you know the story. He prays spontaneously in conversation with others. He prays intense, vulnerable prayers in front of his disciples before his execution. He even gives thanks for food in front of an enormous crowd, which is pretty traditional. Uh, Praying out loud in front of others is actually an example to be emulated because we see it in the life of Jesus. Praying for the sake of being heard and honored by others is condemned. By Jesus, And therein lies the difference. Of course, we know with certainty that Jesus is not condemning lengthy or even wordy prayers because he himself was said to spend entire nights praying. Here's just one example from later in the same biography we're reading right now. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, (laughs) buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake, which is a different story. It seems weird right now, now that I read it. Jesus is depicting, the point is, Jesus is depicted as getting away from the disciples so he could pray all night long. So be like Jesus, pray at length pray for hours even, but do not fill time with empty words simply for the sake of filling time. Uh, I remember the first time I attempted an eight-hour bout of the spiritual discipline of silence and solitude. And if you think I'm trying to impress you, believe me, it was a fiasco. It was a disaster. Like I... I tried to like read and my mind wandered and then it was too hot and I wandered from one place to the other. And at the end of the day, I was like, well, what was I doing out here for eight hours? I didn't feel like I had accomplished anything at all. And and if you've related to that, if you've tried silence and solitude at all, let alone for eight hours, believe me, uh, you know already it it takes practice. That's totally okay. But imagine if I did the eight hours, right? I did the full thing and I came home quite satisfied with myself, telling everyone, man, I just spent eight hours in silence and solitude, whoo. It was tough. Um, perhaps maybe someone would be impressed. They'd be like, wow, that guy spent eight hours. He's a Christian, man, wow. Um, and that would be all that came from the experience. I'd impress that person, and that's it. So Jesus isn't saying, don't pray at length. He's saying, don't pray at length to be noticed or praised by other people. Next, Jesus isn't condemning repetitious prayer. Look at this later in Matthew's Gospel. It's written of Jesus... This? Maybe it's not right. There it is. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Repeating the same prayer, even prayers that have been prepared in advance, can be a beautiful thing. Most of us don't have a paradigm for liturgical forms other than lyrics to worship songs. But liturgies are essentially written prayers designed to be read aloud by a group of Jesus' disciples all at once. It is actually a beautiful way of unifying both thought and voice for purposes of praise and worship or lament or requests or repentance. Uh, If you've been at Van City for a while, you know we employ liturgy ourselves from time to time. It can be done in private. It can be done as a community. And both Jesus and the historic church tradition have always valued both So Jesus isn't condemning persistent prayer either. That is, sincerely asking for the same thing again and again and again. He actually teaches that we should do this. In Luke's biography of Jesus, it is written, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And he concludes that parable by saying, Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? Jesus teaches and exemplifies that prayer can and often should be done in public and with other disciples of Jesus. It should be done at length, it should be repeated, and it should be persistence. But on the other hand, Jesus teaches that prayer should never be for the sake of being heard by or impressing other people. And the reason is that prayer is for God, not for other people. Theologian Karl Barth said it this way, Prayer as a demonstration of faith, as disguised sermon, prayer as didactic preparation of the listener for the sermon, or as a summarizing resume of the content of the sermon. Prayer as an instrument of edification is obviously not prayer at all. Prayer is not prayer if it is addressed to anyone else but God. And, of course, Bart is not talking about praying for other people or for the sake of building other people up. He's talking about praying for the sake of being heard and admired by other people. Now, maybe that's not something you do, but we, of course, I think, take the concept of prayer hostage for a great many subtle and selfish reasons. For instance, when introducing a big idea for which you are not prepared to receive any critique or pushback at all, just preface it with, listen, I've really been praying about this a lot and then have your big idea. Who can push back on that? When you've run out of ways to empathize with a person, you can just end the conversation with, well, man, I'll be praying for you and leave it there. Uh, When you're not willing to be vulnerable, uh, you can describe dire situations with, well, man, just keep me in prayer. I don't know why everything's man. Well, keep me in prayer. How about that? And of course, I'm absolutely not accusing you of insincerity if you've said any of those things. Honestly, I've said them all And I'm confessing to a certain amount of guilt in using those tactics insincerely myself. But I have also said them and meant them. And I've actually said those things and followed through on them. The question is, again, why are you saying these things in the first place? Because you actually intend to talk to God or some other superficial reason? Is it to impress or to offer conversational platitudes because you're not willing to be vulnerable? Is it to sound spiritual? Is it because you just feel like that's what you're supposed to say? So well, there's something else worth warning against here as well. And please hear me on this. Uh, with all uh, humility and want to be gracious about this, but how many of us avoid praying out loud or in front of other people compelled by the exact same motivation? You are concerned for what other people will think. The false righteousness that compels praying to impress others is, to my estimation, the very same false righteousness That compels many to avoid praying in front of others because they are more preoccupied with the opinions of other people than with God. And when we become unconcerned with the honor of others or the scrutiny of others, and when we understand ourselves as God's beloved children, then prayer can become this clumsy, awkward, humble, unimpressive, and also deeply sincere, vulnerable, and intimate experience with God the Father. But just as prayer should never be engaged as an empty exercise for the sake of an audience, it should also never be done in such a way as to coerce God into listening. Um, Jesus is addressing forms of prayer which do not presuppose God to be a good and loving Father, but instead imagine God consciously or subconsciously as cruel or arbitrary or a vending machine or unconcerned or aloof or distant or stingy or retributive and so on. Why talk to God at all if he knows what we need already and if telling him isn't like petitioning Santa Claus for Christmases? Why talk to God at all if he already knows what we need before we ask, as Jesus says? Because the idea is that God is a good father and good fathers want to hear from their children whether they know what they need or not. And many of you, I realize, actually do not know what it means to have a good father this, that's okay. This is a safe place. For you, honestly, understanding God as a good father is going to take some hard work done in community, in prayer, um, with counseling. But it's so important and so worth it to actually walk that hard road to get there because beloved children don't, imp- don't approach their dad as a dictator or as someone who is distant or aloof. And they don't go to their dad for an intelligence briefing. They speak freely as favored loved ones. They sit in their dad's lap. They speak without censorship or pretense. They speak openly and vulnerably, presupposing their father's goodness, presupposing his willingness to listen and to respond. And when they do, it sounds something like this. So to end tonight, let's read Matthew 6, beginning with verse 9. Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Jesus' prayer template here is actually in the center of the Sermon on the Mount. And it includes references to what preceded it and what will follow it. And scholars argue that Jesus is making this prayer the sort of hinge moment in his collection of teachings because in it lies the secret to life in the kingdom and to all that Jesus commands, understanding God as the Father. Now we'll walk through the prayer ourselves in just a moment, but of course the stark conclusion to Jesus' prayer template seems a bit jarring Uh, when you read through it. The contrast of God's willingness to forgive against our willingness to forgive other people is actually an intentional one. Jesus is deliberately highlighting the unfathomable amount of forgiving that God readily offers in order to remind his disciples that there must be no limit to which they are prepared to forgive other people themselves. People in this context means everyone. Forgiveness in this context means everything. Now, obviously, some forgiveness comes easier than others. The this, this sarcastic quip from your coworker or the short temper of someone in your community requires decidedly less emotional strength to forgive than, say, an abusive parent or an unfaithful spouse. Jesus, of all people, understands this very well and this is precisely why people here includes everyone and forgiveness here includes everything this is after all what god has done for you and i the jesus entire premise of being spiritually formed is to become like god himself or in jesus words be perfect which can be translated be whole be complete because God is whole and complete. For Jesus, learning what it means to practice righteousness and to do so completely unmotivated by the praise or approval of other people is about becoming like God. Reject anger and live at peace because God is slow to anger and God is abounding in love. Reject lusts and the objectification of women because God has designed sexuality for good Reject adultery and divorce because God is faithful. Reject oaths and deception because God is always honest, always full of truth. Reject violence, reject the hatred of enemies because God dies for his enemies. Give to those in need, pray, fast, not to be rewarded by people, but to be seen by God. God is your father. Forgive others as God has forgiven you. Now, before we sing tonight, I want to point out one last thing. I realize that most of us probably do not struggle with the desire to impress others through prayer. That's like three of you guys, and I'm one of them. So counting me, it's like three of us. Uh, Perhaps more of you struggle with a fear of praying in front of others, compelled by the same concern for what people think. Sure, you, you may be more represented in the room, I don't know. And Jesus is speaking to both of those things, to be sure. But I want to offer one last analogy to close this teaching. So imagine this, if you will. Imagine that it is your first day at a prestigious academy of music. And you've been accepted based on some raw talent and an eagerness to learn, but you know very little about music theory or how to play at all. That's why you're going to school. Now imagine that on this, the very first day of class, the most renowned and celebrated composer, conductor and all the world shows up to teach. And so you're eager to be inspired, and you lean forward to hear whatever introductory words this teacher might offer. But instead, he suddenly begins to unroll an advanced lesson on performing a symphony. And he's saying, when you perform a symphony, play from your heart. Do not play to impress the audience. And you sort of shrug and say, well, sure, that sounds fine, but I'm not even sure how to play a symphony, let alone how to be rightly motivated to play a symphony, And if you notice in this teaching, look how seriously Jesus takes the prayers of his disciples. How often they do it, when and where, and more importantly, why they pray, all matter tremendously to Jesus. And I imagine that many of us on a a night like tonight and a teaching like this one, we may feel like that confused student, you know? Here Jesus is addressing the motivation for something that you're not even sure you know how to do at all, let alone how to do well, let alone how to be rightly motivated. And that's okay. But like that new student sitting under the master teacher, our goal as disciples of Jesus is to recognize where it is we are lacking as students and to close that gap that we might learn from our teacher well. Not long ago, we actually spent weeks in the spiritual discipline of prayer. Those teachings are all available online. The practices themselves, guided curriculum for the prayer disciplines are at practicingtheway.org. Remember, that wasn't meant to be a one-off, but the process of building an ongoing lifestyle of prayer. If you didn't do that, or if you did, but you've drifted, that's totally okay. You can always go back. It lives forever on the internet or until you know Skynet wakes up or whatever, and the internet's gone. <laughs> that's why we take the practices of jesus seriously and our goal at van city my hope and my prayer for myself and for all of us is that we would become a family known for our willingness to pray alone in public briefly at length again and again seated in our father's lap speaking freely without fear without pretense and without censorship So to end tonight, let me pray over you guys, and then I want to walk you through a a prayer exercise all together. Let me invite the Spirit to come and guide our time.